Let's pray. Out of the silence at the beginning of time, you spoke the words of life. And out of the world's primeval darkness, you flooded the universe with light. And so this morning in this place where it's actually quiet, we wait and we watch. So in the stillness of my soul and from its depths, the sense of my heart, God, may we just be awake to you. So we long for a fresh word from you, and so open our ears to hear your voice, and I pray that you would reveal yourself this, to us this morning. Amen. Jerry! Jerry! Come on! Come on! Now, how many of us, when you were young and you were growing up, would hear your own voice being yelled at? You were able to be outside, you were able to play until it became dark. The entire block of your neighborhood was your playground, right? Fences meant nothing. They were something to walk on. They were stuff to jump over during hide-and-seek or a game that we called manhunt. But when it got dark, when the streetlights came on, you could always count on the yell, Right? The yell. So it was mom or dad. The call that came to come home. Come home! And it didn't matter where you were in your neighborhood because your parents usually stood outside the door, at least mine did, in uh, just south of the university, and they would, I would hear the call of my name. And I knew when I heard the call that I just had to obey it. Or else, actually. <laughs> it, was, it was quite simple. And so today we're going to continue our walk through the book of Matthew. If you're our guest this morning, this is what we do. We basically pick a book of the Bible and we just start walking through it. And so we're in Matthew right now. And last week we read uh, that Jesus' message to everyone was a call. It was actually the call to repent. So Jesus' message that he preached all the time was repent, uh, which means to turn around, to go another way. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven was near. But now as we walk through Matthew chapter 4, we see there's another call. It's a very specific call to some very specific people to follow him. And this is what it says. So as Jesus was uh, walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once or immediately... They left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, uh, uh, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately as well, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So I want to lay out some history today. I want to try to maybe dispel some misunderstandings that actually arise out of the scripture. Uh, because when we read this passage, it's, it's rather wild that these guys just sort of walked off with an apparent stranger. You know, right away I'm looking at, isn't there any stranger danger signs? You know, didn't you know, Zebedee actually, you know, uh, teach them not to follow and put their trust in strangers? Like, what was going on here? Something was happening. But again, we have to understand that these are not strangers. 
Jesus had begun teaching in the area and had already been functioning in the role of a rabbi. He was already gathering crowds, where you can presume at this time. And he calls these young men to follow him. But unlike some, I don't believe that this passage is a general call to all believers. But rather, I see it as a very particular description that some people are called specific for ministry. It's a call to ministry. Well, how can you say that, Jerry? Well, it's easy. Careful study of the New Testament recognizes that there are several callings that take place over a period of time. And as we read throughout Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, we're going to come across, we're going to see that there are these general calls out to all people. But when we look at this context, there is something very specific being asked. And the word call actually is one of the most common verbs in the entire Bible. It represents over 20 different Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, and so, But here, uh, as you will see, there's actually more to it. And as we look carefully at this passage this morning, when being called by God not all Christians are asked to leave their work for something else. You with me? Something is taking place here that we should notice. And I haven't preached often about God calling us specifically to ministry. But I actually believe he does. Now our culture also takes a shot at this idea in some movies that we see, in, in the, like in this clip that you're about to see. The main character is actually an everyday normal person who, who wanted to do something special with his life, and he wanted to change the world. So, uh, so earlier in the movie, he actually gets down on his knees and he prays. And what he prays, while his wife is sleeping on the bed, he goes, God, please help me to change the world. Well, then this happens. Watch your screens. You know, sometimes God shows up in our lives and we don't know what to do. And, and we don't even recognize what's happening. And uh, so I believe that God calls all people. All people are called to him. But he also calls certain individuals to specific ministry. And the concept of the call is one, actually one of the most profound biblical ideas. Because the Bible's riddled with story about calls uh, to men and to women who, when they're summoned to service, they went out and they marked their generation in a very particular way. God called Abraham, he called Moses, he called Isaiah, he called Amos, just to name a few. Jesus calls 12 men to be with him, and then he sent them out to disciple the nations. The Holy Spirit calls Saul and Barnabas and other apostles to, to apostolic opportunity, but no one in the Bible, when we read it, anointed them, himself or herself, but rather we see this pattern that God calls individuals. And all these calls are very unpredictable, which is quite interesting. For example, Gideon, he responded to the call. And when he's having a conversation with the angel of the Lord, he says, how can I save Israel? Look at me, man. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. You know, I am the least in my family. And then Paul, uh, or Saul of Tarsus, as we know as Paul later on, he goes, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. I'm a violent man. Moses goes, no, man, I'm a stutterer. And yet God is calling these. And, and, and some of these biblical calls usually focus on mind-bogglingly, seemingly impossible objectives. You know, Noah was called to build an ark. Moses was called to lead a nation out of Egypt. Elijah was called to challenge a wicked king. Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles. 
but the call that these and the experience that these people have in the scriptures is so compelling that it was this encounter, this, this unexplainable desire that gave them courage to do what they felt that God has put on their heart to do. And again, in the Bible, each call is unique, right? No one seems to have a call like any other. The circumstances, the nature, the expectations of the call, it was all customized. It's all part of God's plan, but it's all customized for the individual. And when God wanted a word said, or when he wanted people led, he mandated a person to make it happen in usually a very unprecedented way. Now, Matthew here, he describes the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And the first bit of information we get a little bit earlier is that Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown. So Jesus leaves his family's home. Uh, he leaves his mother Mary. He leaves his siblings. And, and he sets up shop in Capernaum, which is a busy you know, fishing center. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And he moved away from his small town upbringing. And he takes up residence in a... a somewhat bigger, busier, more cosmopolitan town, uh, but just a little bit bigger. And, and he begins to publicly preach and teach. And he's urging, again, what's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But instead of trying to go out and to look for the most successful, the most influential, the most pious or scholarly people to be the first voices to join him in his mission, Jesus actually goes in another direction. He turns things upside down. So here in this passage, there, there are four men who are specifically chosen to follow me, as Jesus put it. And there's something revolutionary on how Jesus calls his disciples. No way. Yeah, seriously. Historically, it's interesting. What defined the Jewish people and the nation of Israel was the honor of being the people who had the Torah which was considered the, the way, the truth, and the life. The, the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it was the Torah, and uh, it was the teachings, it was the instructions, it was the way, it was the truth, it was the life, it was central to life of the Jewish community. community. And so education at that time was really a community effort, and uh, it was the school of life was really the most important thing, not merely just imparting information, but life information. So around six years old, many Jewish kids would, would begin with a formal school for the first time, probably in a local synagogue with a local rabbi. And at that time, they began to memorize. And so that by the age of 10, they were basically expected to have memorized all first five books of the Old Testament that we would call the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Wow. By memory. And this also gives us an understanding that when, when we start walking through Matthew and we see that Jesus, you know, he's quoting scriptures and, and, and he, there's a sense when we look at the scriptures that his listeners know all the references to the Old Testament scriptures that he quotes. So he's telling people what they already know. By the age of 10 to 14, most students had begun to sort themselves out. Some would move into a family trade because not everybody's cut out for school. We understand that. They knew that. But those who had the special abilities in the scriptures would begin to stand out. And they begin then to enter into another level of education. And so the best of the best would then go on and they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. And so that by the age of 14, the top students had the entire Old Testament, what we'd call the Old Testament memorized. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, 39 books. And perhaps if, if uh, you're familiar with the church world, Jesus was found in the temple in Jerusalem. At what age? He was 12 years old. And what was he doing? He was teaching. 
So really, around that age, they also studied the art of questions and something called oral tradition. And, uh, you know, this oral tradition came down over thousands of years and, and ver- how various scriptures are to be understood and what it meant to live them out. And so you would have a verse, but then large amounts of commentary and oral tradition of who said what in the name of whom. And they needed to know all this, and they would talk, they would midrash about it. By the ages of around 14, 15, most students were now, you know, either at this point, if you're not learning the family business or some trade and starting some families on your own, well then, the most prolific and passionate scholars would say would now be able to apply to a well-known rabbi to try to become one of his disciples. And we often think of a disciple as a student, but the goal wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew, not just this knowledge to come into us. The goal was to be just like the rabbi. And so when a student applied to the rabbi, he was you know, asking the rabbi, asking to take the rabbi's yoke upon him, his learning. I want to be exactly like you. And he wanted to learn the way of life of the rabbi. So when the student came, he would formally present the desire uh, to the rabbi, look, I, you know, I want to follow you. Um, and the rabbi then had to look at the student and decide whether or not that this young person could do what they did. Isn't that interesting? You know, does this person have what it takes? And it becomes a very critical process that took place because the rabbi would be committing their life now to try to train this disciple and they would be risking their own reputation. And if the rabbi believed that this kid had what it took, he would say, okay, well, come and follow me. At that point, the student was likely to leave his father and mother, the synagogue, the friends, the village, and devote his life learning how to do what the rabbi did. And they would follow him everywhere, not wanting to miss a thing, man. Everywhere, it was even said that one should cover themselves with the dust of the rabbi's feet. A common saying. But, if the rabbi looked at the student and said no, well now that student had to go and find another rabbi to approach. And, and the process is very similar to a college application. That's, that's basically what was going on here. So at the age of 30, when a rabbi generally began his public teaching and training of disciples, we find Jesus out walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees a few young guns working along the Sea of Galilee, and he urges these guys, like they're hard workers, they're, they're, they're doing the family trade, that's what's going on. And he does things upside down, and he doesn't wait for them to come to him, but rather Jesus calls out and he invites them to follow me. It's different than what typical disciples would do because they would try to select that rabbi. Here we see it being turned upside down. And so Jesus chooses not the best scholars of the Torah, rather he chooses ordinary fishermen. And this in no way indicates that these first disciples were illiterate or ignorant, although they did get that label, okay? In fact, they are obviously involved in and busy in their own successful pursuits in the family fishing business. uh, It was a major industry in Capernaum. You couldn't be a dummy and do it. You needed to know what you're doing. You needed to know finances. You needed to know, know where the fish are, how the boats work, and everything else. But they had probably, and I presume, had resigned themselves to the fact that they would never be able to follow a rabbi and they would never become a disciple. So they go into the family trade. 
And so when Jesus comes along, he makes this offer and they jump at the opportunity. They didn't want to miss it. And so they dropped what they were doing and they went. And Jesus doesn't have a job description for his disciples. He had a spirit description. Can I say that? He didn't go for those who were qualified and had the highest grades and the highest quality, but he summoned those who had the right spirit about them and were open to the future. He called specific people. He called Andrew, Peter, James, and John to be his disciples. And he calls them to follow him. Well, that's great, but there's another question I have. I go, but why fishermen? So God chooses people, but he chooses unqualified people. People who want to change the world but don't know how to begin. And it's kind of dramatic that Jesus goes out and he calls four hard-working commercial fishermen to be his first disciples. Later on, we read in John chapter 21, and we find that seven of the 12 disciples may have actually been fishermen. Is there a reason why Jesus calls so many fishermen? Have we ever asked that question? And I actually think so. Because fishermen are very busy people. Fishermen don't sit around doing nothing. They sorted their catch. They had to mend their nets. They had to get ready for the next day. Most fishermen are constantly busy, constantly tending to your tackle box, right guys? Uh, straightening things, sorting their flies, cleaning their rods, lines, reels, everything else. If you got a boat, you're working on your boat, but you're relaxing, this is what you're doing, but you're busy. And so these men Jesus called, in my opinion, are actually industrious workers. Did you notice how Peter and Andrew were busy at work when Jesus called them? And I think this is an essential element for people when we're serving Christ. We need to stress the importance of energy, of industry, and a willingness to work and, and to work hard. And that's really what the ministry is all about. When I got call, uh, pulled in, uh, I'll tell that story later. So Jesus calls a person. And that person is working, he's not sitting, and God doesn't choose lazy and inactive. I go so far as to say that God chooses the energetic and the diligent. People who want to, but don't know how. And again, fishermen, what are they? They have to be patient. You ever notice how a fisherman can sit for minutes, sometimes hours, just watching their net or lines in the water? We didn't do that. Watching, anticipating. In Acts 1, Jesus said to his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard from me speak about. And for 10 days, these fishermen and other people waited and they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited. Can you imagine just sitting and waiting for days on end? Well, if you're a fisherman, you know that process. Not knowing what was coming next, not knowing how long you're going to wait, but sometimes we're, we're required to sit and wait for God to act. These guys also had faith. And I know we, we, we give the disciples a hard time, but they generally can't see the fish. They're not sure that their nets are being filled. They don't know um, when that big one may strike, you know, with a monster on the line. You know, but if you ask a fisherman if he plans to catch anything, they're going to say always, right? We don't go fishing not with a, I hope I don't catch anything today. 
You know, a true fisherman will go to their favorite place with an attitude of catching the largest amount of fish, catching our limit. That's what we want to do. We want that lucky strike. We want to make it happen. And a true fisherman doesn't go fishing with a terrible, I can't do this. What's the youth? Why are we doing attitude? He goes expecting. He goes with anticipation. This is how these guys are wired. But they also have courage and perseverance. I'll never forget we went to a... a <laughs> white shell what's that Falcon Lake Simone I was with your dad I'll never forget this I can't remember if this was a bachelor party thing or whatever else but we were out fishing on Falcon Lake with Randy Redman uh, Randy Engel and Herman these are the good German guys right um, Herman Dickau Herman the German as we affectionately call him and uh we're out and we went uh, all the way to the east side of the lake and then some squall came in and we're trying to get this boat back to uh, uh, dock and we just couldn't and the waves are crashing over us and, and you know, we're, it's, it's Falcon Lake, it's not that big, you can see the cottages on both sides but the waves were coming literally over the top and I remember Randy trying to take the cover and just getting mouthfuls of water and trying to pin stuff down and finally we get across but we actually thought we were going to go down don't talk about the condition of the boat. That means absolutely nothing in this whole thing. But it's crazy. Fishermen, when you think about it, have to have courage. They have to have perseverance because they brave the storms at all times of the year. That's where you need the courage. You need to go out in your boat. And if there's no catch, you have to go again. And you have to have that perseverance again and again and again until you finally do because your life depended, depends on that. And so as fishermen, they knew that there was a cost to what they're doing. They knew that there was a physical cost, that a mental cost, even a spiritual cost. And they went through difficulties, but they were determined to do what they were called to do. They're fishermen. And it seems that this calling of the disciples is also something that's very permanent. And when we read the story, there, there's some factors that point us in this direction. Both sets of the brothers are said to have left their nets. Matthew tells us that James and John not only left their boat, but they left dad. Oh, that's going to go over well. And then Jesus' words, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people. It implies to us that he's now changing their profession. And Matthew's use of the word immediately is interesting there, and it can't be overlooked. He tells us that immediately after these four men were called to follow Jesus, they left everything. And this may not be the first time that these men have been called, but it's the first time that they've been called to follow Jesus permanently. And what they did is immediately they left everything behind. And I believe that this passage is recorded to inform the reader that Jesus was a man of authority. Not only did he teach with authority, as we read in scripture, but he called with authority. And so when Jesus uh, chose these guys, it's so significant that even at the end of their three years together, he prepares them to go forward after his death and resurrection. And he reminds them in John 15, he says, you did not choose me, boys, remember, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Now go and bear fruit that will last. What an encouraging thought, man. You chose me. It's just like a boyfriend, girlfriend. You chose me, husband and wife. You, you chose me. We all want to be chosen. 
And that's what takes place here. And so Jesus tells them that he will make them fishers of men. And again, biblical imagery is very rich. Uh, often it's different from what our own perceived um, notions are. And how strange, you know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we filter everything through our own worldview, right? We, through our own culture, our own life setting. And many preachers, they'll come to this analogy we, we see here about fishing, and they talk about a fishing pole, a line, a reel, and hook, and they use it like this. But I think we need to stay true to the text here. Maybe this will be one of those moments of, oh, I never looked at it this way, and I hope it is. But the kind of fishing that's envisioned in this text was not line fishing, but rather it's net fishing. These nets were circular. They had these heavy weights around its perimeter, and fishermen would either stand on the shore and repeatedly cast their nets into the water, or they would drop their nets from the boat. And the occupation of the fishermen was actually very labor-intensive. And so the imagery of using a lure and a line and waiting for the, the fish to strike is actually foreign to this text. Jesus is not speaking about a finesse like we would do in a, maybe a fly fishing in the casting or, or using the right kind of bait. The imagery has nothing to do with hooking, you know, the unbeliever with the gospel. And further, this picture is not individualistic. The point is not one person being reeled in at a time. It all has, you know, all that has to do with line fishing, but this is not the picture in the text. Rather, the imagery we see here is of a fisherman involved in much strain, long hours, often little results, but working together in community. They were working in pairs or more. And I think... When we read this, Jesus is tapping into something that's in all of us. These guys wanted more out of life. Maybe a challenge. Maybe excitement. Maybe to make a difference in the world. Because I, I honestly believe we all want to make a difference in the world. Do we not? Do we, do we not want to make an impact? Do you not want to make an impact? Like, do you not want to leave a legacy? Like, what's my legacy going to be when I'm dead and gone 50 years from now? Gosh. Nobody's going to know my name. Except, I'll be honest, what I pour into my kids. And hopefully what I pour into you. That maybe, just maybe, my words being used by God, somehow sparked something in you and you, you being obedient to the voice of God, not the voice of Jerry, but the voice of God acted on it. That's our legacy. You know, this is a building. It's going to be done in no time. This is not a legacy. It's a building. That's legacy. The people we connect with, the people that we talk with, the people that we love, the people that we spend time with, the people that we pour into, that's our legacy. And what we ask, is there more to life than what I'm currently doing? Yeah. And it's interesting to see that Jesus, that the calling of Jesus is defined by participation. He wasn't calling them, hey, come join my fan club. You guys can have pom-poms and you can follow me around and cheer me on. But rather he says, come and join me on a mission to follow him into the restoration of creation, to make a difference in this world. And when we read that the disciples left their nets and they followed Jesus, we often visualize them, well, they never went back home. Well, they went on a three-year camping trip with Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. This is not true, okay? 
Because more likely the scenario was that, the dra- yes, the disciples were traveling around with Jesus, but they would frequently return home because as they traveled, they were traveling the Galilean countryside. That's where he spent most of his time. They were more, never more than a, a day or two's journey away from their homes. So it wasn't so much the homes as opposed to the vocation. And so being disciples of Jesus, though, impacted their lives and how they went about their vocations. And they turned from fishermen who followed Jesus into disciples of Jesus who fished. And I think it's an important nuance that we look at. We can't imagine what they saw and did with Jesus and how it didn't affect their lives back home. You know, certainly they shared with others what they seen and heard. Without question, you know, Jesus' teachings about love and forgiveness, you know, started to transform their lives also. And they had problems with it. And we're going to see that as we walk through Matthew. But the call of Jesus is a life-changing experience. And I love the attitude and the action of the boys as they immediately, they left their nets and they followed with no delays. And they realized that they had just been offered the chance of a lifetime and they seized the moment. You know, so the question then has to, we have to ask is, so does God still call men and women as he once did? And, and, and do we know how to recognize and implement a call if it, if it should come? And I, I believe he does, but I, I, not everybody has the same encounter. All Christians are called to serve the cause of Christ. But I believe that God calls certain people to serve the church and mission as pastors, as missionaries, and other types of ministers. You know, writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor, Paul confirms that if a man aspires to be a pastor, it's a fine work he aspires to. That's 1 Timothy 3. And so it is an honor to be called of God into the ministry of the church, but how do you know if God's calling you? Let me tell you how God called me. I grew up in a pastoral family. My dad was a pastor living with Temple. I remember um, I'm the youngest of three boys. My oldest brother is uh, 13 years older than me. I remember him going off to Bible college. He felt a call to ministry. And uh, I remember growing up, and I struggled growing up. I struggled growing up being the son of a pastor. I struggled growing up, you know, we lived in a a fundamentalist world. Um, You know, you didn't dance, you didn't you didn't drink, you didn't do stuff like that. And, you know, uh, like even in school when they were doing the Maypole dance, you know, some of you old people like me remember what I'm talking about, right? I couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed to participate. I wasn't allowed to participate in any dance classes in gym. I was forced to go to the library. I was made fun of. And I hated that because I was made fun of because of, you know, I was a Christian and we as Christians didn't do those things. And so I struggled. I struggled growing up. But I knew that the God was always there. And I always had a tender spirit. You know, I was a bit of an idiot, sure. Those of you who knew I grew up, yeah, you're idiots too. Deal with it. And, I, you know, getting older and, you know, coming to high school and, you know, starting to realize, okay, so what am I going to do with my life? And I looked at my dad, who was a full-time pastor. He also worked for the city full-time because that was a major source of income. And dad said, you know, get it, see if you can get a job. Well, first of all, dad said, go to university. Everybody needs to go to university in our family. And he said, go to university and uh, get an education, and then you can get a job. So 
I did. I decided to enroll, and I went for a Bachelor of Arts party degree. I spent more time playing uh, Space Invaders and pool than I did in class. I actually would go to class to fall asleep so that I can go play Space Invaders. I used to give plasma and get 30 bucks a week. You don't think it was anything, but it's big money now. But that would be my pizza and my my play money all week long. My parents couldn't figure out where I was going, but I got track marks in my arms that are so thick that when I have to go give blood, they look at me and go, do you have a dependency issue or anything? No, No, I just gave plasma in university twice a week for three years. (sighs) Because they paid me. I was going to be a city worker. I was going to cut grass for a living. Yeah, why not? Union job, phenomenal money, going on unemployment when the snow hits. I had it all laid out. I looked at my parents and my dad, and the last thing I ever wanted to do was be a minister. And there was some resentment, resentment towards people, resentment towards the church. Resentment towards God. And last thing I had, my brother, he goes off. He's called now. He's going to be a pastor. Great. If you know anything about my oldest brother, Ron, he's, I'm pretty much night. He's pretty much day. Black, white. Complete opposites. Drove me crazy. Halfway through my university year, bunch of things happen. I made some stupid choices, in my opinion. Or at least God allowed me to make some stupid choices. But then, it was almost like I got struck in the face to take not only my life and my direction of my life seriously, but my faith seriously. And so I remember one Sunday night at Emmanuel Pentecostal Church when it was on Ruby and Palmerston, um, the pastor gave an altar call and it, just, it was a, a call to come to spend time in prayer at the end of the Sunday night gathering and to seek God and to seek the voice of God and what is God trying to say to you and I remember responding to that and, and again I think I was at a place where I, I was open and willing and I just I wanted to make a difference and do something with my life but I didn't know what. And so I remember being at, at, the, at a pew. You remember what those things are? Yeah. Was it padded? I can't remember if they were padded. Or not. No, it wasn't. Yeah, hard bumps. I had my face where other people would sit. I just put that together right now. But anyway, here I am calling out to God for direction. And I would probably have to say that in my own personal life, I was the most serious I've ever been with God. And just calling out and asking questions. A peer, if I can say that. Somebody roughly around my age. But I didn't hang out with them. So they, they really didn't know what was going on in my head and what was going on in my Comes up behind me. And sits down or stands behind me and, and just puts his hands on my shoulder and starts praying audibly for me. I'm asking God questions. He's beginning to pray audibly 
And through his prayer, he begins answering my questions to God. He has no clue. Even, even to this day, that guy has no clue what was going on. I got up off the ground that, that day, or off, the, off my knees, and I just knew that I had a call to youth ministry. But my dad's a pastor, and my brother's a pastor, and I don't want to be a pastor. But I just knew. It was so strong that when I got off my knees, I went home that night and I went to my dad and I said, look, dad, I'm, I'm going to quit university and I'm going to go off to Bible college. And My dad was interesting. He was my godly counsel at the time. He looked at me and, and the, he gave me some words that I continue to use to this day to, to many of you, finish what you've started. If the call of God is still on you, finish what you started and he'll pick it up from there. I didn't want to go to university. I, you know, again, it was just party time, but, and it was hard. It was, oh, man, I like treaded water all through university. I think graduated on sea level, you know. That was it. But I graduated. And then the next year, I enrolled into a master's. Why? Because, again, I, I knew I had to go to Bible school. I knew that that was part of the process. I, and I hated education, and, and it was part of this process, but I knew I had to do it, and so I enrolled in, in a master's program, and I went off to Saskatoon, and that was purgatory beyond belief. It was my personal, I kid you not, I hate Saskatoon. It was my personal purgatory. That's probably why I can't stand the writers so much. There, you know, I have issues. I have issues. I went to Central Penn, Pentecostal College, Central Penn. I literally took uh, electrician's tape and put bars on my windows. I was making a statement. You remember, you were with me, right? Was I a model student? No. <laughs> I would break the rules. There was a dress code, there was a hair code, there was a, you know, you couldn't wear jeans to class, so I would be running around, I'd come back, and I would have just inside my door a pair of oversized pants I'd put on over top of my jeans, and then I'd run into class and sit down because I was constantly late, and then I would cross my legs, and then you would see, you would see my jeans, and then my dress pants on the over top, and the prof would say, you're wearing jeans, i go, no, I'm wearing dress pants. <laughs> right? But our hair, right? We couldn't, we couldn't have our hair past our collars. But what did I do? I grew my hair out. It was what? Uh, when were we there? The, the yeah, okay, 80s? Were we there? 80s, right? 87. 87. And so I had the mullet. Oh, did I have the mullet. My hair was down to here. But in class, it couldn't be down to there. So I would push it all the way up and spray it. So, <laughs> so I met the rules. My hair was a time bomb waiting to explode. I pushed everybody's buttons. I know I did. I was a jerk sometimes, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. You know, Joan, it's so good you're here. If you say anything, I'll hunt you down because I know where you live. Um, but I know what God called me to do, and I got involved in the life of Elam Church, and I worked with the youth ministry. I worked with a guy named Norm, and you know, my job was to pour into kids and be a life group leader and I hated school, but I loved the ministry aspect. We got married halfway through. I transferred my education here. I had to start taking life a whole lot more seriously. Had to intern. No church wanted me. 
<laughs> I kid you not. Do you know what it's like going to a church, talking to the pastoral staff, saying, hey, you know, part of my education, I need to intern. I, I'd like to serve you for free. And they go, uh, no, we just don't want you here. <laughs> Boy, do I have anger issues. <laughs> and so the guy, I go to Mark McKnight, youth pastor at Calvary Temple. I don't know Mark. Mark doesn't know me. But my brother is on staff there. And I hate what I'm about to do. Mark, I need to meet with you. Okay, what do you need? I'm in a master's course at Prov. I have to do an internship. With... No other church wants me. <laughs> Can I serve you? And then, you know, just get my grades. But under one condition. That you don't tell my brother. <laughs> so he goes in, he meets with the senior pastor, H.H. Barber. And Mark phones me up and says, yeah. We'll take you on. I had to do stuff I hated. I had to lead worship. I don't sing. I think Kent McNeil to this day has a tape with my voice on it, if I'm not mistaken. I had to preach. I was a bad preacher. I had to try to care for kids who are smashing bottles, cutting themselves. Heidi, if you're here, I remember you... Dealing with kids with, with issues. That's how Heidi and I met Heidi Peters. And she comes to Seoul one day, I go, I remember you. And I go, I don't remember you. Do you remember so and so? And we met, and you know, people with mental issues, kids that were just struggling. And that was my calling. I didn't have it put together, I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. That's why we need your help with the, <laughs> the forms. <laughs> But I knew that I was called to do something. I knew I was called to change. And I realized very early that my call was for life transformation. To do what God has called me to do, to see people's life change. I can only bring Jesus to you. It's up to you whether or not you're going to eat from the table. And so when I finished my internship and we were married and, you know, you were going to school and I'm going to school and life was crazy and I got a job offer, part-time. And when that was finished, I got a full-time job offer, again, all at Calvary Temple. And the day that I got the full-time offer, Pastor Barber came in and sat me down. He goes, Jerry, I need to have a talk with you. I want to talk to you about ministers. I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but this will be interesting. And if you know anything about who Pastor Barber is and was, he was, can I use the word workaholic, pastor of the city? Like, you know, he would print his own bulletins on a gestetner. You know, this is what he did. And 2,000 people showing up. And he was always in the office and always visiting. And he, he ran. He goes, Jerry, there's, there's two types of people in ministry. I'll never forget the conversation. He goes, there are some ministers who are the laziest men alive. And there are others who are alcoholics. He goes, oh, alcoholics, workaholics. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, I remember it so clearly. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
laziest man alive or workaholics? And he goes, don't be like me. Because he was a workaholic. Don't be like them either. But I thought it was very interesting for a young guy coming into the ministry. I, I, I could never get a start in Winnipeg if it wasn't for H.H. and Mark saying, yeah, we'll take a risk. And then our life went on from there. Was I called to plant a church? I don't know. I'm just being obedient every day of my life. Is it a desire? It was never a desire to plant a church. But I think that God puts impressions. Can I use that word? Guides us, pushes us, leads us, opens doors for us. And it's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to be moving in that direction. And I feel that that's where I am. And that's, I am convinced that Jesus is still calling individuals to do very specific ministry to this day, even in this room. And I'll put it like this, that one needs to be careful that we don't also try to establish some sort of formulas from hearing from God. Because the Christian world is good for that, right? Ever notice that when God is calling us to do something, you know, sometimes people think we're nuts. When we moved from Victoria back to Winnipeg, literally, my friend said, what, are you crazy? Why Winnipeg? When we decided and announced that we were going to plant the church, people walked up to my wife and said, are you nuts? Why would you leave the security of a church and a good paycheck and your kids are going to starve? Thank you for your confidence in us. When God calls us to do something, sometimes people think we're nuts. So how do we know it's God and not the hot wings from the night before? Or the jerk chicken? How do you know when a person is out of their mind? Legitimate questions here. What if somebody starts behaving like nobody else is behaving? You know, what if he says they hear things that nobody else hears? What if they fear what nobody else fears? What if they devote all their energy to a cause that nobody else believes them? Would you say they're crazy? At the very least, we would think that they're weird, right? And so the question is, as Christians, and especially from somebody who believes that God does speak to us, that the Holy Spirit does speak to our souls, How do we know when we hear the voice of God? How do we know that it's God, that it's not just our imagination or the hot wings from the night before? And I would like to suggest to you today that I have a litmus test that I use when it comes to discerning God's voice in my life, but also in other people's lives when we come and have conversations. Because many times I hear this, and it drives me crazy. You know, God called me, God told me. You know, God said this, God said that. To which I always respond, right. I go, isn't that sacrilegious? No. No, yeah, I, I can't, it's so subjective. I can't, you know, question that. But how do I, how do we, you know, recognize the call of God on our lives? And I think there's three ways. I think that the, first of all, the call of God is always very personal. Again, very subjective. If God is speaking to you, he's speaking to you. It's personal, it's to you. He's calling you to a task and, and whatever you hear from him is, and I'll say this care, carefully, subjective. That means only you really hear it and understand what's being said. I will never speak against someone who said that they have heard from God. I might say, right, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I can only take their word for it and listen because it's personal. But right away, I start putting a litmus test up. 
The second part of the discerning process is that people need to seek out godly counsel. If God's calling you, you need to seek out godly counsel regarding the matters that, you know, they feel God's calling them to do something. And the genuineness of a call is usually, but not always, but usually confirmed by others who discern the unique work of the Holy Spirit in a particular person. Talk to people who you see as godly, who will give you the truth regardless of your feelings. People who will use scripture to test and see if, you, if what you are sensing is from God. I need to take a break. I had the most amazing conversation last night on Xbox. Call of Duty, three of us, where the other guy is asking questions to the point where he says, can we go into private chat? Three of us go into private chat. One guy, Ohio, is listening. Other guy, um, Toronto, is doing all the talking. This other guy drove me crazy about three months ago. You know, with all this crazy stuff that he's pulling off the internet and, you know, anti-church, anti-God, anti-everything, anti-Catholic. He's just going off. To the point where I almost defriended him, but I, I, I didn't. Making a statement. Last night, for, and I'm exhausted. I, I wanted to go to bed, but I couldn't get off because of the questions and the incredible questions that he was asking about the church and about Christ and about different denominations and I kept bringing him back to scripture. I, I, I just, you know, it's just those moments where I go, I can't believe that this conversation, can I record what's going on here? And his honesty and openness and apologizing for, uh, you know, asking questions and phrasing them the way he's phrasing them and I'm just saying, just, just talk to me, just talk to me. And then knowing that there's a third person there just taking it all in, just listening. And, and I was guiding him back to the scriptures. Guy, you need to read the scriptures. You need to read the scriptures. You need to use the scripture to test your cockamamie ideas and what you think and how you interpret. You need to go to, the, to test and see if what you're sensing is truly from God. And that goes with all of us. And it's funny, you know, sometimes you know, we feel that God is, in the Christian world, we feel that God is you know, telling us stuff. And, you know, too many people tell others what they want to hear simply because they don't want to hurt them, right? We're good Canadians. You know, give me a break. If somebody came into my office and, and told me that God was telling them to go to singing ministry and they're tone deaf, I'd be the first to tell them to get lessons before opening their mouth. You know? And then we can see if that's a form of God or hot wings, and then we'll find out after that. I'm not saying that the call is not authentic, I, but the reality is, and sometimes we need to work towards the final goal that God has placed in our hearts. I was told in Bible college by the president You'll never make it in ministry. Oh, you just did the wrong thing to me. What does it mean to make it in ministry? Have straight A's? No, that wasn't my goal. My goal was life transformation. I'll never forget the day that I got my credentials and said president walked through the line and was shaking all the hands of all the people who were successfully proven two years in ministry. Fooled you, didn't I? 
That's what I said to him. Maybe not the most appropriate thing. But maybe the, it wasn't his guidance. Seeing a young guy out of control, but who loved God and wanted to serve people. My faith wasn't about the rules. That weren't scriptural. You know, there are exceptions when people come and talk to us. And we need to seek godly counsel. There should be some hard questions that we're asking. Are, are people impacted by the, the person who's supposedly called? Are you making a difference in people's lives? Are they drawn to Jesus? You know, are people drawn to Jesus through what's going on? Do they grow in Christ-likeness? Are they motivated to a greater commitment and vision? There's a number of questions we need to talk to people if they're feeling that they're hearing from God. And these are some of the questions that are likely to be relevant when a call is being assessed, when we listen to godly people that God has placed in our lives. And sometimes we will be really surprised what we hear. And I'll never forget the conversations I had with, with uh, um, uh, Mark McKnight just guiding me. In the process of this, you know, uh, I'm your assistant, just tell me what I need to do. And guide me, pour into me. My brother, when I worked in Victoria with him, the same thing. He would pull me into his office. We'd have to set the parameters. Is this boss to employer or is this brother to brother? Because it really changes the dynamics. And he would guide me. And he still does to this very day. I remember going to a pastor, asking a pastor, going, hey, look, I'm a young guy in ministry. I just, you know, will you mentor me? He looks at me and goes, no, I just don't do that. call of God on our lives will be seen and will be confirmed by the congregation and the community that we live in. If you're called, the people in that community will recognize and see that there is a calling on your life. And maybe you would even say, oh, I don't, I don't believe in the calling. I don't think there's a calling. The community sees it and recognizes it. And maybe you've never had that personal encounter with God. You never heard a voice or you never had this moment. What Moment. And Morgan Freeman never showed up and had a conversation with you, but your giftings are evident to everybody. Another biblical term would be fruit, right? And they see your fruit of your call, and thus it's confirmed. And that is a moment of certainty that God has put his hand upon you, that he's nudged you towards a particular people, theme, function, whatever it is. I do need to say this. Some men and women who have obeyed God's call have become martyrs. Others have undertaken unspeakably difficult and discouraging tasks and barely have survived. Some people have obeyed the call of God throughout history and they found themselves living obscure lives in far off corners of the world and have finished the course, never feeling that maybe they have accomplished anything of measurable value. And then, of course, there are those of, whose lives have sparkled with spectacular results with their preaching, their writing, their books, their organizational building, their, their ability to, to envision and empower people and have left a mark on church history in that way. And what do they all have in common? I go back and I look and they knew deep within their souls that God set them aside for a purpose and they held on to it. Deep within, I knew God set me aside for a purpose, and I held, excuse me, I held on to it. 
And those whom God has called know this call by a sense of leading and, and purpose. And it's a growing commitment to something. Later, Jesus explains to his disciples that following him would cost them everything. They and we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Christ. And Jesus predicted that the people would hate his followers, that this world would be like a sword that would have divided uh, families as well. But no matter how high the price required to faithfully follow the call of Christ, we're assured that ultimately it will be worth it. The martyred missionary Jim Elliott stated, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Gaining everything in this temporary world is worthless if it costs us our soul. And God promises to reward those who persevere despite persecution. Paul, who was taunted, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, referred all of his trials, and he says it like this, like a momentary light affliction in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that was coming. They understood Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words. He says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So what keeps these people going? You know, when we read these stories, these biographies, through all these difficulties, the only indelible memory of a moment when they probably became very sure that heaven had spoken and they were under some divine appointment and they couldn't run anywhere else and they could not turn back away, they could not quit. I wanted to quit. More times than you know. I can't. God still calls. Has he called you? Maybe you're just beginning to explore who Jesus really is and you showed up today going, oh, wow, what did I walk into? And maybe you sort of wondered what these you know, religious expectations are. I hope today that you've begun to hear Jesus calling not for religion, but his call to repent as a response. And I would encourage you to take some time to explore that relationship and ask God today to speak to you, to make Jesus known. And, you know, maybe... Even this morning, you're feeling a tugging in your heart as he's calling your name to follow him. Like I said, we're all called to repent. Some have already answered that call. How about you? Maybe you need to turn around and change your life, and maybe you just need to make Jesus Lord of your life. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads, and as I pray this morning, and if that's you, just Say this prayer along with me. Jesus, I just recognize you as my Lord and Savior. And I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you. And I thank you for coming to earth to die in my place and to take away my sin. And I believe in you and I receive you into my life. Thank you for making me a child of God Help me to rely on you in the days to come. Help me to follow you so that I can grow to become like you in Jesus' name.
You know what? If you prayed that for the first time today, would you tell us before you leave? Pastor Jordan's going to be at the side here on my right at the cross. You can come up to him and tell him. And we, you know, and if you want, if you want to ask questions and go further, look at, we want to meet you for coffee. You just call the office, set up a time and a place. We'll make it work. And if you're not sure about this stuff and you have more questions, you know, you can fill out a welcome card and you can put it, just drop it off in the joy basket or put it at the welcome desk. And we'll follow up. We'll email you, we'll talk to you, and we'll try to do our best to answer your questions. Let me talk to some of the rest of you here today. Maybe you've known this calling and responded. What song are you going to do? No. Do the creed. Yeah. ADD. Maybe you've known the calling and you've responded. But maybe you've sensed that you're prioritizing and your participation is at a loss, right? I'd highly encourage you to go on my Facebook. I don't throw Facebook. It's about time. (laughs) Francis Chan talks, and I'm talking to parents with young kids. Francis Chan talks to families. Maybe you're struggling. I want you to ask God to renew your calling. Maybe you felt more like a weekend fan in your Christian walk than a life follower. Well, then let me pray with you, shall you? Stand with me, people. Heavenly Father, you are always calling us to respond to your voice. So today, what is it that you're saying to each and every one of us here individually? What is it that you're saying to us here as soul sanctuary? God, what is out of order in our lives today? Honestly, Lord, what do we, as we stand before you, what do we need to repent of? And may we commit ourselves to taking your words to heart. And God, we thank you and we ask you to continue to protect us from the evil one. But Father God, we are aware that there's always sin and an error around us. And so we pray for a purifying and a cleansing. And just on our own lives, we pray that your spirit will open our ears to hear your voice. Help us to take Jesus' words seriously. He is with us until the end of the age because all the other options are miserable. God, help us to embrace and be empowered with the simple idea that we have a choice in how we respond to the situations in which we find ourselves and what kind of people we are going to become out of these things. And God, help us feel empowered in the midst of darkness and suffering that we can actually respond well. Help us not only impact our environment, but also to impact those who are needy around us in so many ways. And God, you place people in our path that need your help. You place us in places of opportunities. And as Noah, you are looking to us to be involved in a process of healing and helping and life transformation. So may we be mindful of that every day. 
Oh, we thank you and we praise you and we believe. We believe. In ancient times, one who blessed, extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Oh, so sanctuary, may God send you out from this place of worship and this time of celebration to do what? To live lives of hope. To be nurturers of the vision of wholeness, to serve as healers to the wounded world. And may he grant you wisdom. May he grant you courage. May he grant you his peace. And may you learn to dance with him. Amen. I just want to shout out to our youth and all the crew, Jordan and your whole team that did a phenomenal night last night. I want to shout out to the people I had, uh, unfortunately I had a cancellation at my table and I'm phoning people up. Hey, I got two tickets. You want to come? Hey, I got two tickets. You know what people said to me? I couldn't believe it. I got life group. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I am so thrilled when I hear people say that they're committed to their life group, even when some people were sick. I love this church. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.